Good morning, everyone. I would like us to uh, begin actually by turning to Psalm 90, if you're willing to follow along with me. Um, Even doing a biography, um, it's still uh, beneficial as often as possible to include uh, some scripture. And uh, you'll hear later in the presentation uh, in this lesson that Psalm 90 played an integral role in the life of Olympia, so I I thought it'd be a good one to to start with this morning. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only, is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have, the, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, our lesson this morning is on Olympia Murata. Um, I... I, as I was preparing for this and, and contemplating it, I felt the same thoughts and emotions that Andrew expressed last week with wanting to do this heroine of the Reformation justice and, and, um, and just be able to convey uh, some of the adventure that she went through and the passion in which she lived her life. Um, and so I, I hope that you enjoy this journey with me. Um, and uh, afterwards... Uh, if you're intrigued for more resources, uh, just let me know. Um, I have access to most of her, her letters and writings and would be able to uh, get you uh, connected with that. Now, you may have noticed, like I did, that Murata sounds um, like a Japanese name. She was not a Japanese reformer. She was an Italian reformer. Though Murata is a Japanese word, uh, transliterated with two Ts for what it's worth. It means received, so that's just free information. You can ask Leo for more information on that later. Well, Olympia Fulvia Murata was renowned as an Italian scholar, poet, and writer who sought to advance the Protestant Reformation in Italy, and she was considered one of the greatest classical scholars of her time, and she lived from 1526 to 1555. In preparing for a study like this, one finds oneself asking, why do we know so little about this great Italian Renaissance scholar? Well, unfortunately, due to the loss of a large proportion of her work during the siege of Schweinfurt, 
followed by Olympia's early death at only age 29. Olympia's legacy is not what it should be. However, what does remain demonstrates the depth of her knowledge and her heart for scripture and reformed theology. Well, Maybe my battery's dead. I apologize for that. Uh, I was hoping that this would be a little bit more fluid than it is. Well, I created a timeline. Because, uh, as T2 mentioned on Wednesday, uh, some of us just love timelines. And I thought it would be, I thought it'd be uh, beneficial. So there's a few things that I wanted to point out. Uh, the ladies in, in this color at the bottom, we'll call it orange, um, you might recognize the names because they're the ones that we've learned about over the last several weeks. I put Anna and Ulrich together because, as you recall from maybe the very first lesson from T2, uh, they were married. And I wanted to give you an idea of where they all fit into the timeline of, uh, of Olympia's life. Um, she was born in Ferrara, Italy. Uh, I know it sounds like an Italian sports car. They're made in a completely different place. But she was born in Ferrara, Italy. Um, Schweinfurt became an independent Protestant town in 1541, and eventually she would um, move there in 1550, shortly after her marriage. We'll hear about that. And then she ended her life in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, and also influential uh, in this is the Second Margrave War, which ended up driving her from Schweinfurt to Heidelberg. So that just gives you a general idea of what's going on. And it's not only possible, but probable that she... She met John Calvin in Ferrara, but that's just speculation, but he did spend some time there. Uh, any questions on the timeline? No. I, w- I would have thought not. I mean, it's a good timeline, right? So uh, I also wanted to give you a map to give you a general idea of where she was working and operating and living um, in, in, uh, in Europe. So she was born in Ferrara. She would move up to Schweinfurt in 1550, and then, uh, again, she'd spend just the last couple days, uh, last year of her life in in Heidelberg. And actually, I just remembered, I I forgot something on this other timeline, which is very interesting. So Margaret de Navarre um, was actually the aunt to René of France, who becomes the Duchess of Ferrara, under whom... Uh, Olympia spent uh, much of her, her youth. And so these, not only did you hear about Marguerite, but Renée de France is definitely worth studying, and she was very influential uh, in, in Italy uh, on the Protestant Reformation. So uh, Olympia's father was Fulvio Pellegrino Murado. And again, maybe this will be my last play on words. Maybe he had some family wealth from his delicious sparkling water. Um, Though San Pellegrino may be different. Um, So what I noticed, though, in in looking at her name and his name, so Fulvio Murado, um, and then she she has the feminized form of both his first and last name. That's Olympia Fulvia Murata. Um, I tried to do a little bit of research to find out how common it was to, to... give the feminized 
form of the name, and I, I frankly didn't come up with much, but I was still intrigued with that. Um, Fulvio served as a teacher uh, and tutor to Urkel, the, the future Duke of Ferrara, and his brother, so he was a scholar in his own right. Um, he was also an early convert to Calvinism, and again, he, he possibly uh, met John Calvin in the court of René de Esta. Uh, in 1532, Murado left Ferrara temporarily and took his family to Vicenza, where he secured a post as a public master of Latin. He also gave lectures, wrote, and published. Uh, we know very little about uh, her mother, uh, Fulvio's wife. Um, it's possible that um, she was of ill health because all I was really able to find out about her is that she was still alive when Olympia left the court to care for her dying father. And when she left her home for good, she took her youngest brother, um, who was several years younger, with her when she left. But the sisters were of marrying age, so she left them at home, assuming they wouldn't be a burden for long on their mother. Um, Olympia was educated by her father as well. Um, and by the age of 12... She could read, write, and speak both Latin and Greek, and was well-versed in classical literature. For example, one of her biographers noted that by the age of 13, Olympia was able to deliver a rhetorical speech of the Stoic paradoxes of Cicero in Latin. Um, now, this is an accomplishment in and of itself, uh, because she was re renowned for it, so it was no trifle of a thing. Um, but for what it's worth, Latin was still being spoken at the time, and she often wrote letters in Latin, but it's still impressive what she was doing at age 13. At age 13, she would be invited to live at the castle of Esta, um, where Duke Ercole II and René de France, now René de Esta, uh, lived. Um, Renee came from a line of Protestant French nobles and brought her, Protestant, her Protestantism with her to Ferrara. And at one point, her court became a base for reformers in, in Italy, and she was visited by uh, John Calvin, as I mentioned, and several other reformers. Um, though he went by a pseudonym while he was there, uh, apparently he went by Charles Desperville while he was in Ferrara, um, possibly um, in hiding. There's not much about it, except it is confirmed that he was definitely there. Um, and it was around 1539 to 1540 when Olympia's reputation as a child prodigy earned her this invitation to Renee's court. And Renee made Olympia the companion to her daughter, Anna, who was six years younger than Olympia. Uh, but she wanted her... Renee wanted Olympia to serve as a, a tutor and friend to Anna. And so the two were given lessons together, and Olympia still continued her studies in Latin, Greek, and the classics, wherein she continued to thrive. Olympia would likewise read the works of the reformers and even gave lectures about Calvin's writings. And it was during her time at court that Olympia met um, a friend that we'll hear um, several times throughout, throughout this lesson, Lavinia della Rovera, uh, who was later the count of Count Camillo Orsini, who I know nothing about, but she married a count. Um, and she would grow up to be uh, Olympia's lifelong friend and fellow reformer. And throughout the lesson, I have several 
letters that I'll read and dialogues that are addressed primarily to these two women, to Anna, uh, to Lavinia, and some others. Despite Olympia's reform training, she spent several years too distracted by her love of the Greek classics. In one dialogue that uh, she captured between herself and Lavinia, Lavinia remarked, you are always poring over books. Do you let up? To which Olympia replied, I do indeed immerse myself in books that I may not waste the time which God has given me. I've been lauded to the skies because I read so many authors, but I know my ignorance. I've been in danger of forgetting God. Olympia eventually left court and gave up her studies in order to care for her father before his death in 1546. Um, Afterwards, she remained away from the court to care for and teach her younger brother. When Olympia did return to court, things were not the same. Lines were being drawn between the Catholics and the Protestants, those who were on the side of the Duke or the Duchess. While Olympia was gone, her friend and companion Anna had been married off and and moved away. Furthermore, it appears that Olympia fell victim to Jerome Hermes Bolsec, a double agent who reported on the religious activities among the Duchess's friends. Although this man claimed to be a Protestant and thus sought the safety of Protestant-friendly places such as the court of Rene in 1545, he only stirred up dissension for the true, true reformers. And to give you an idea of just how much of a, a bad guy he was, um, he made some pretty unsavory false accusations about Calvin that don't bear repeating, but one story tells of a controversy with John Calvin over the doctrine of predestination, which he deemed an absurdity. On October 16, 1551, one of the Genevan ministers, Jean de Saint-André, at a regular gathering uh, on a Friday night for a sermon and discussion, was preaching on predestination. Bolsec interrupted and argued against him. He thought that Calvin was not present for the service, but Calvin had entered. Uh, He had entered the meeting late and was sitting in the back. In the discussion, Bolsec rose to criticize Calvin and his doctrine of predestination sharply. In answer to Bolsec, Calvin rose and gave a detailed and according to his supporters, a brilliant defense of predestination. Unable to respond to Calvin, Bolsec was arrested and was banished permanently from Geneva on December 23rd, 1551. Now, all these events in Geneva took place after Bolsec had already wreaked havoc in Ferrara. Because of Bolsec's treacherous dealings at Ferrara, Olympia was dismissed from court, and she returned to live with her mother and youngest brother. In her theological maturity, or biblical discernment, however, she took it all in stride. She wrote to one of her friends and former tutor, Celius Secundus Curio. She said, I want to write all this to you, not to distress you with our troubles, but so that you can rejoice with us. God is our aid in our adversities. In fact, I rejoice that all these things happened to me, for if I had remained any longer in that court... It would have been all over for me and my salvation. For while I was there, I was never able to undertake anything high or divine, not even to read the books of either the Old or New Testament. Her departure was certainly for the best. Worse was yet to come at the court of Ferrara, and Olympia undoubtedly recognized the hand of God in these events. In a dialogue that Olympia recorded with her friend Lavinia, she related her trust in the providence of God and was grateful for what her adversity brought her. 
She wrote, if only I hadn't wasted time in this great error and in ignorance of what's really important. I used to think that I was most learned because I read the writings, the writers and scholars of all the liberal arts and was wallowing in their works like mud. But even as I was exalted to the skies by everyone's praise, I realized that I lacked all learning and was ignorant. I had fallen, you see, into the error of thinking that everything happened by chance and of believing that there was no God who cared for mortal things. So great was the darkness that had overwhelmed my soul, but God began to dispel it, in, and a little light of that unique and divine wisdom began to rise for me, and I proved in my own person that all human affairs are ruled by His wisdom. For when I was deserted and abject, as you know, He took such care of me that I found Him to be a father and protector of orphans in a real sense. And believe me, no parents ever showed their children the indulgence that God showed to me. At last, I realized how stupid I was. Are there any questions or comments at this point before we... So the previous slide said she was not able to read the Bible at the place. So... Um, yeah, under that, under that certain period, um, because of the... So when she came back the second time was where those lines were being drawn between the Catholics and the Protestants, and so the Catholics would not have uh, wanted the Bible to be read by the, the commoner. Um, and then um, all, pretty much any uh, Protestant dealings were kind of being reported and undermined and, and countered. So she did previously have opportunity, but, but things were starting to get worse in, 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 the, in, that, court. in, in that court. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. There he is. Uh, it's from a previous slide, um, but I was just curious if John Calvin went to Ferrara, um, they didn't have cars in those times, so how was travel done and I mean, how long would it take? Uh, how long it would have taken, all I can guess is days at a minimum. But they would have walked or taken horses or carriages, um, that kind of thing. So they, they had to do a lot on foot. In that last slide, it said she feared for her salvation because she wasn't reading the Bible. Did she mean she was fearing for her death? No, I think that um, what she was reflecting on is, uh, it's, it's just like any of us today. If we, if we fail to continue to do our, our Bible reading and devotions, if we fail to come to church, you'll, you, you inevitably sense a, a spiritual decline. You fall easier into temptation and sin. You get distracted by other things. Um, and I think that that's what she was realizing, that it was good for her to have faced the trouble that forced her to leave that environment and turn to God. This is not a picture of her husband, though. I don't know of any picture that exists, but he is a 16th century doctor. Um, and in 1550, Olympia married Andreas Grunfler, a physician and fellow Protestant. Now, Andreas belonged to a small circle of humanists at the court of Ferrara. Um, and then in danger from the Inquisition, several months after their wedding, they would move to his hometown of Schweinfurt, where Grunfler received the post of Stat physicus and stat artst. So the first term, the stat physicus, is a learned body physician in contrast to the practice-oriented stat arts. Now, what these strange titles me mean 
is that he was appointed by the city council to perform the duties, um, essentially the tasks of a modern-day health department or a surgeon general, um, in addition to his private practice as the city doctor. So that, that's what that means. So he, was, um, he held those two important positions in, in Schweinfurt. While in Schweinfurt, Olympia continued to read, write, and even teach Greek, corresponding with many and, and, most important, and, and many of the most important Protestant scholars um, of that time. Often in these letters, and several of them were Italian, because as she's writing to them, she's asking them to translate important works of Luther into Italian in order to bring her countrymen out of darkness and into the light of the Reformation. During the same period in 1551, she was discovered by the Italian humanist Lilio Gregorio Garaldi, who in his book on the poets of our times wrote of her, among them is Olympia Murata, a girl gifted beyond her sex. Not content with her original language, she has perfected her knowledge of Latin and Greek letters, so much that she appears to be a wonder to almost everyone who hears her. Not only was Olympia renowned for her humanist writings in the classics, she was also respected for her theological writings. During this period, she was also translating the Psalter into Greek. Now this Sounds perhaps like a strange undertaking. Um, if she had only had the Septuagint and the Old Greek, her efforts perhaps may have been unnecessary. What she had, though, were Latin translations of the Hebrew and the Old Greek, which she translated back into classical Greek. One author writes, Murata's Psalms represent a unique moment in the cultural history of Europe. They are an exemplary product of both halves of biblical humanism. There had been a flourishing tradition among the evangelically minded of turning the Psalms into classical Latin meters. Murata, however, was the first to use Greek. Furthermore, Olympia's husband, Andreas, would then set her Psalms to music. Additionally, we also have extant letters that demonstrate her thoughtful theological reflections. In one, she wrote to her friend Lavinia, who was apparently distraught over whether she was in the group of the elect, whether she was chosen for salvation or not, and what that meant for how she would respond. But Olympia wrote to instruct her, I'm also sending you some writings by Dr. Martin Luther, which I enjoyed reading. They may be able to move and restore you too. Work hard at these studies for God's sake. Ask that he enlighten you with true religion. You will not lose. You don't think that God lies. Why would he have made so many promises unless he wished to keep them? He invites and summons all the wretched to him. He turns away no one. So set aside the old error we were led astray by up till now. When we thought that before we pray to him, we ought to know whether he has elected us from time eternal. Rather, let us first, as he ordered, implore mercy from him. And when we have done this, we shall know for certain that we are in the number of the elect. So you can perceive from her writings that she is fighting against a type of hyper-Calvinistic notions about election and predestination. We are not called to preach the gospel only to the elect, nor are you to presume that you must determine that you are elect in order to repent and turn to Christ. Rather, the fact that we humble ourselves in true repentance and cling to Christ in faith is the demonstration that we are loved of God and called according to his purpose. In 1553, the Margrave Albrecht Alcibiades, or Albert of Brandenburg, on one of his plundering expeditions, took possession of Schweinfurt. 
In April 1553, his troops barricaded themselves into Schweinfurt and even pillaged the residents. Meanwhile, Schweinfurt was bombarded by the Elector of Saxony and an alliance of other German factions, leading to starvation and then the plague. And as Olympia is recounting this, she writes another letter uh, describing the events and her perspective on Providence to her friend Lavinia. We were besieged by the vast army of the two bishops of Würzburg and Bomberg, and by the troops of the Elector Moritz and the Duke of Braunschweig, and the men of Nuremberg as well, all because of the army of the Margrave of Brandenburg, which he quartered in this city. But God has so covered us and guarded us that no one, incredible to say, has been killed by the missiles that are hurled at us night and day with such impact. He has driven off and warded off their attack from us. In all the evils and losses that war brings, he is still with us. And in our want of food, which is most severe, he kindly provides us with what is necessary for survival. He has even brought people back from the brink of death. Because of the close contact with the soldiers with whom the city is stuffed, a plague has invaded nearly all the citizens, so severe that nearly half the populace is dead from brain fever. My most... My own most loving husband was infected with a disease and grew so seriously and dangerously sick that there seemed to be no hope for his life. But he who is accustomed to guide souls below brought him back by the great and ceaseless prayers offered by the church and by me. He took pity on me who could not have borne such grief. In June, the Brandenburg troops vacated, but that allowed the enemy to pour in and set the city aflame. The city was looted and set on fire with many escaping with nothing but their lives. Olympia and her husband were forced to flee to the Count of Erbach in the Odenwald. On the way, Olympia contracted malaria, and Andreas was arrested several times, nearly facing death at every turn. In the first instance, he was arrested or seized by some soldiers who wanted to gain, get a ransom from Olympia. They hoped to make some money on it, uh, but she, she had nothing to pay, and so she just poured out her heart to God, and they released her, released him. In the second, he was arrested by a Catholic bishop that wanted to put him to death, um, but again, God was gracious to Olympia's prayers. Eventually, they finally succeeded in reaching Heidelberg in 1554, yet Olympia lost all her books and most of her writings during the siege of her home of Schweinfurt. She described the escape to a friend, speaking first of the soldier who told her to leave the city before it was burned down, and this she wrote in Latin. She stated, we obeyed him and left, <coughs> stripped and denuded of everything. We were not allowed to take even a penny. In fact, our clothes were ripped off us in the middle of the town square, and I was left with nothing to cover my body except a linen tunic. Then, when we had escaped from the city, my husband was captured by the enemy. I was unable to ransom him at even the lowest price. And when I saw him being led away from my sight, I prayed with tears and unutterable groans to God, who immediately set him free and returned him to me. But once we had left the city, we did not know where to turn. At last, we made our way toward Hemmelberg. I was barely able to crawl there. The village is three German miles from Schweinfurt. And the citizens of the town received us unwillingly since they had been forbidden to offer shelter to any of us. Among the refugees, I looked like the queen of the beggars. I entered the town with bare feet, unkempt hair, torn clothes, 
which weren't even mine, but had been loaned me by some woman. I was so exhausted from the journey that I developed a fever, which I could not get rid of in all my wanderings. She wrote um, a similar account to, uh, in a separate letter to her friend, Cherubina Orsini. Um, she wrote it uh, again after the fact, August 8th of 1554 from Heidelberg. And she, uh, she describes her arduous escape from Schweinfurt, um, this time in Italian. And um, I translated this from the Italian to s- see what the, um, what, what, uh, the account was, and it's very similar to the previous one. She writes, I wish you had seen how I was with disheveled hair, covered with rags, for they took off our robes from around us, and in fleeing I lost my shoes, nor had socks on my feet, so that I had to flee over stones and rocks, that I do not know how I got there. And again, this this is a little bit redundant, shorter version um, of the previous account, Um, but this is also free. I was intrigued as I was translating this with the term scopigliata, because um, it was mildly uncommon. It, it took a little more effort to find it. And while I was looking for what the word meant, I found Leonardo da Vinci's La Scopla Guiata, which is the woman with disheveled hair. And so I just found that kind of interesting and wanted to share that. In Heidelberg, Grunther received a call to be a medical chair at the University of Heidelberg, where a medical leadership excuse me, a medical lectureship had been obtained for him through the influence of the Erbach family. Olympia initially gave private lessons in Greek, but because of her renowned scholarship, she was soon one of the first women to to be given a teaching position at the university. However, her health was destroyed from the trauma of the flight from Frankfurt, and one of her last letters to her sister, Vittoria, She wrote, there's trouble everywhere. Germany is raped. England suffers persecution. Oh, my dear sister, may I be able to pray with David the 90th Psalm. Teach us to number our days that we may obtain a heart of wisdom. Remembering that the span of our life is but toil and trouble, and soon we fly away. May I give myself to the contemplation of things eternal. And she would die on October 25th, 1555 possibly of tuberculosis, um, though the, the plague had also reached Heidelberg and, and it was devastating the city, so it's, it's hard to say um, assuredly what she died of. But shortly after her death, both her husband and her brother died of the plague. The three of them are, are buried at St. Peter's Church in Heidelberg. During her short time in Heidelberg, however, another extant letter captures her theology and her influence well. In her letter to her old friend, Anna de Esta, now Duchess of Guise, Olympia encouraged her to use the authority and position which she had to defend those persecuted for truth. Otherwise, if Anna was silent, she might as well be a co-conspirator of their death. I hope you don't mind these, these long quotes. I think they're valuable, and it's kind of better to hear it from her than for me to just give dialogue about it. So in just a year after her flight from Schweinfurt and only months before her own death, Olympia wrote, But the one thing I most desire is for you to apply yourself seriously to the study of the sacred writings, which alone can unite you with God 
and console you in all the miseries of this life. I myself have no other solace or delight. As soon as I had left the idolatry of Italy through the singular kindness of God and went to Germany as the bride of Dr. Andreas Grunthler, God changed my soul wondrously. So I who previously for so long had shied away from divine letters now delight in them alone. On him I concentrate all my study, work, care, and all my mind as far as I can. All these I despise, riches, honors, pleasures, which I used to admire so much. I wish over and over for you, greatest lady, to think on them too. Nothing, believe me, is stable here below, and everyone, as the poet said, must walk the road of death and soon. For life is fleeting. Riches profit nothing, honors nothing, the favor of kings nothing. Only that true faith in which we embrace Christ can save us from, the, from eternal death and damnation. Since this is the gift of God, you ought to pray for it from Him with the greatest prayers. It is not enough to know the story of Christ, even the devil knows it, but one ought to have the faith that works through love that makes it possible to dare to confess Christ even among his enemies. Otherwise, as he said, he who is ashamed of me, of him I will be ashamed before my father. Nor would there have been any martyrs if they had hidden their faith. Therefore, my sweetest lady, since God has blessed you with such kindness in order to open his truth to you, and since you know that all men who are being burned there are innocent and are undergoing so many tortures for the sake of the gospel of Christ, it is your clear duty to show how you feel either by pleading for them to the king or by praying for them. If you are silent or connive and allow your people to be tortured and let them be burned and fail to show at least with words that this displeases you, you will seem by your silence to conspire in their slaughter and to agree with the enemies of Christ. Olympias' appeal seemed to have worked. Anna would later stand against the court of France and the Queen Mother, calling for the end of cruelty against the Huguenots. From 1558, over 50 letters, as well as some poems, translations, and other smaller writings by Olympia um, appeared posthumously in Basel, Switzerland. Her friends, especially the Protestant scholar Celius Secundus Curio, collected the letters that remained and poems that, had, that she had recorded from memory from Schweinfurt, and he began publishing several editions of her work. And I was able to find even a title page of, of his uh, edition, 1580 edition of the works of Olympia Murata. I thought that was interesting. In Schweinfurt, the memorial on Bruckenstrasse at the Olympia Murata Gymnasium commemorates the school's namesake as one of the most learned and important humanists in European intellectual history. In the vicinity of her old home, a plaque reads, The Humanist, Olympia Fulvia Murata, born 1526 Ferrara, died 1555 Heidelberg. Lived and worked in the free imperial city of Schweinfurt from 1551 to 1554. Education and her steadfastness in faith, love, and courage and tolerance were her hallmarks. Here at this location, she lived with her husband, Dr. Andreas Grunfler, the city physician. Any uh, questions or comments before uh, Adam first? What is a humanist? Yeah, yeah. Um, man, it pays to.
have attended the previous lessons. Um, I thought about re re repeating it early, earlier, but uh, T2 had reminded us in one of the earlier lessons that a humanist in that day was, um, did not mean the same thing that it does today. So they were the ones that were um, uh, students of, of literature and, and the arts and, and things, like, things like that and not pagans and human worshipers, the, the worshipers of mankind that, that we believe of today. That probably didn't do justice to what, how you presented it, but it's got to be close. <laughs> Mike? Remind me who, again, who she wrote that letter to where it says, if you stay silent while your people lose. Yeah, so that was her, her young friend, Anna, who grew, grew up. Her, her mother was Renee de, of France, and she was Anna of Esta, uh, where Olympia uh, served as, as a child. So she was... Uh, uh, Anna was seven years old when Olympia came at the age of 13 to study with her and be her friend. And so now she was back in France as the Duchess or Countess of Guise. And so she had some influence, though she wasn't in charge. Um, it worked for a short period, but um, uh, it, it would be less than 100 years later before the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where thousands of Huguenots were put to death. Tens of thousands. It's less than 10 years later. St. Bartholomew is still in the 1500s. Oh, okay. Okay. I was getting, yeah. Uh, Brandon. Is there a reason that a gymnasium is going to It's a school. Yeah, the a German way of saying school. So it would be like the in America if it said the Olympia Murata Middle School. Yeah. Uh, a reminder who the Huguenots are. Were they a political group? They were essentially the French reformers. Yeah, the French Protestant reformers. Uh, Jim. Uh, it's interesting to just see how uh, her writings became or what appeared to be more sovereign as she wrote. Uh, at, at what age it was interesting to kind of see that. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot more. Um, I was able to read most of the of her letters and dialogues that were translated from Latin, but there were several others out there that I saw just snippets of. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Anything else? Questions or comments? Anyone recognize that gentleman by chance? I wouldn't have. Um, well, one bibliographer notes an event over 200 years later, and he writes, One evening before retiring, the renowned German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe picked up from his large library a rather obscure collection of letters and poems from a young protagonist of the Italian Reformation, and read with interest her tales of dreams and disappointments, hopes and frustrations, difficult decisions and everyday struggles in one of the most travailed periods of European history. As he put the book down, he commented in his diary, I've read the letters of Olympia Fulvia Murata, which have shed a whole new light on the actual condition of Protestants in those days. And 
As we've observed, many respected her because of her scholarship and skills in the classical languages. Uh, but we are called to respect her for her writings of theology and support for the Protestant Reformation during the tumultuous times in Europe. And so I found um, great um, pleasure and encouragement by, by reading um, her letters and her writings, and I would encourage you to do the same. Um, I'd mentioned to Nick on Wednesday that um, in, in reading them in the privacy of my office, it made me feel a little verklempt. Um, I explained, of course, real men don't cry, but I mean, I was at least touched emotionally to, to some extent, and uh, so I would, I would highly encourage you to seek them out and, um, and re- read more of her, uh, of her life, but her letters uh, specifically. Are there any final closing questions or comments? Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you've left us um, examples of the saints who have gone before us uh, to encourage us, um, to, to build us up, to be an example of how we should live and think. And I pray that when uh, the times of persecution and trial come for us, that we would uh, wholeheartedly agree and, and follow uh, her example of, of realizing your providence and standing firm for the truth that you've given us in your word. Um, We're excited to have been able to spend this month uh, learning of these uh, Reformation women. And we ask that we would um, continue these studies on our own to build up and encourage us in our faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.